0: I'm pleased to bring on the pod marine veteran professor and author Matt Young to discuss his memoir Eat the Apple. Pulitzer Prize and National Book Award winner Tim Weiner calls this book the Iliad of the Iraq War. This is a book about identity, our shared humanity, the concept of the warrior, and how literature can help both author and reader discover who they are and how they fit in the world. Welcome to the pod Matt Young.
1: Hey, thanks for having me Brian. I
0: appreciate it. Matt, I really appreciate you being on here. Um, you your book is Mind-blowing uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, incredibly unique in the marine memoir genre or in the military memoir genre. Um, this is something that kind of grabs your attention right from the get-go. And I wanted to talk about first, you know, both your technique in, in writing and, and the themes. And and something that struck me tremendously was just the idea of identity. You You start the book with a choose-your-own-adventure uh, kind of pastiche. You talk about this concept of the person thing. You have a conversation between what you call past me and present me. Uh, you use uh, drawings, you use a medical diagnostic uh, <laughs> drawing in, in several of your chapters, which is familiar to me as another Marine to, de- to kind of describe your psyche, where you are psychologically um, in your career as a Marine. Uh, and um, something that kind of struck me is yeah, the decision to join the Marines um, was not based on a, Hey, my life's going really great right now. I think I can make it better by joining the Marine Corps. Uh, And nor was your decision to stay in the Marines seemingly based on, yeah, this is a great gig. Um, I'm really enjoying this. So, you know, talk me through how you wrestled with that concept of identity and how that kind of, uh, you know, affected your decision-making both joining the Marine Corps and staying in and going to Iraq three times. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that I had no concept of myself
1: before I joined the military. And I think, you know, I I was kind of like Midwest teenager, angry, partying. Like those were like those are my defining characteristics at that point in time.
0: So it was really hard for you to fit in the Marine Corps then.
1: Yeah, I mean I, like that's like you know like all those all those ads were like tailor made for me, I think, mm-hmm. you know. Even but it, they didn't even need that. Like mm-hmm. it like I did that to myself. Like I didn't I had like no concept of wanting to be in the military even before I drove past an armed services recruiting center and I was like that is discipline. That is the thing that i need right now and so it just like they've you know i feel like the military has kind of positioned itself in this way to be like do you need discipline do you need like direction in your life join the military and the, and it's this kind of weird veneer that they've created that once you're in that thing it's just pure chaos like and and especially i, I mean you know, I, I was in during the surge and it sounds like you got out right before kind of that whole uh, like massive action happened. But the chaos has just gotten, it seems to me, worse and worse and worse. And it seemed to have kind of gotten worse. And and so like my identity became this like amalgam of Marine Corps veneer. And then, which like, I, you know, I could look good in a uniform. It's not hard to look good in a Marine Corps uniform. Like you look good, but then underneath it all, you know, like you're, throwing up on a run at six o'clock in the morning because you're still probably drunk from the night before. And, uh, you know, your sergeant's talking about how many times he had to go to the, to, to med call to get Cipro or something like that because he's got however many venereal diseases or something, you know? Uh, and I, and that was like, those were things that you just didn't anticipate. I didn't anticipate because it had been sold to me as this organization that was disciplined and duty driven and and I kind of bought into that and I think you know we're kind of sold that narrative and it really is easy to buy into and I think that the way people write and talk about war it is like that I think that it's been like that for a very long time it's not that's not a modern convention I think that it's that's kind of how people write and talk about war because it feels like this way to kind of uphold that veneer and uphold like the necessity of the thing that, that it kind of makes men or something like that. And so I, that's kind of how I began to define myself, I think, later on.
0: Yeah, there there's that concept of changing yourself, right? That the military will either force you or allow you to change who you are. Yeah, self-improvement. Uh, self-improvement. Um, but then, you know, you, you get to the fleet and you go to your first barracks party and you know what would you say that the marine corps trying to differentiate the marine corps versus the marine corps at war mm. do you feel like the marine corps changed you in some kind of basic way i think i think it really has because i think that it's still like a i mean it
1: I'm a firm believer that you can't really ever destroy a part of your identity. I think once you form some kind of identity, that thing is with you always. And it just really depends on the kind of strength of that identity. And, and as an 18 year old joining the Marine Corps, I didn't have a strong sense of identity and the Marine Corps provided me the strong sense of identity that, that kind of overtook everything else. So when I left the Marine Corps, it, it felt like that was my defining characteristic and it, and it still kind of because it had taken over that much of my life, then it, was that much harder to kind of find something else to overlay on top of that. Cause I couldn't go back to the 18 year old and try and put that identity back on top of the Marine Corps and hold that down. I had to build something new outside of it. So I think that it really, I think it really did fundamentally change me. Um, you know, not always for good, not always in good or bad ways. I think like there are some, I have some really great characteristics of my personality that I think are from the military. I have a really good sense of humor. I feel like, you know, that you get that snappy sense of humor, the sarcastic wit that I feel the irreverence, I think uh, that is, and skepticism, I think too, is something that I get from the Marine Corps. Um, but I also think, you know, I have impulsive tendencies that I get from the Marine Corps that I already had that were amplified by that organization. And I think that, you know, the the quickness to anger, the quick temper, that like is prized in the infantry is definitely something that is hard to kind of work your way past once you get out and you have to be a civilian and a human when you've been told that it's better to be an animal for for however many years you were in. And I, I think that those are the things that that end up kind of sneaking into your personality that you might not realize it's happening because you're around all these other people that are doing the same thing. So it all seems normal until you get out into the world and you're like, Oh, people don't do this thing people don't show up to work super drunk and and like or go into a bar and w- with an idea in mind of who they're going to punch like that's not what we do oh okay uh, i have to relearn how to do this now and be a be a real person
0: you introduced this this concept of the person thing yeah. in in your chapter masks and i, I just want to read part of this uh for our listeners because for for me it was it wasn't anything that i I've read about these concepts, but the way that you describe it in this chapter, uh, stuck with me, like waking up from a dream. Like you, you're very, you were very clear about it when you were in the dream, you completely understood it, but then you try to analyze it a little bit more when you wake up and you find it hard to do. So I just want to read this and just kind of ask you a few questions. Mm -hmm. This is just the, the beginning of the chapter. We created a person thing. It looks like us, it sounds like us, but it is not us. The person thing is a byproduct, like nuclear waste or babies. The person thing cannot be uncreated as a part of us forever. Because the person thing is not human, its foremost prerequisite to existence is that we lose not only our own humanity, but remove that of our enemy as well. The conditions for loss of humanity were provided amply by the United States Marine Corps. They said when I count cadence you you will respond with the repetition kill in a loud bloodthirsty manner. 1 kill, 2 kill, 3 kill. Hajis they said, mooj they said, targets they said. It, it I this this is I just for the for the listeners this is I think a for me a wonderful kind of sample of the memoir and reason number 238 that you should read it is because of just how you describe that stylistically but also how you describe it I think both succinctly but also it lacks definition right Mm -hmm. there is this thing within you once you go to war that isn't human that isn't isn't part of what, you know, your first 18 years on earth were like, but it's something that the Marine Corps unlocks. How, how did you come up with this idea of the person thing and and how, how difficult was for you to, for you to describe it? Yeah. I, so I think that like, I started,
1: thinking about the things that I had been a part of and the things that I had done. And I was trying to reconcile those things with the person that I had become by the time I started writing my memoir and started writing those stories that, and there was really, you know, I got out in 2009 and then I started really writing in 2014. And so there's a significant period of time, half a decade where I was you know, trying to change that kind of identity and change who I had been or at least like add to it and and become part of society again. And so when I was thinking about like how to reconcile those things, it was just like, like looking at who I was when I was getting my graduate degree in Ohio and, and like the kinds of things that I was really into, which were like, you know, I wanted to read and I was enjoying being around my wife and I like, had friends and i wasn't drinking and i wasn't fighting and i wasn't doing that kind of stuff and then looking back to kind of see how i could have been that way at one point in time and it's and it felt so separate to me that it was like well you know it's like that in the formation of that identity you formed some kind of like defense mechanism that allows you to you know get to a space where you're one okay taking human life and two, potentially looking forward to it because that's what the Marine Corps wants you to do is they, you know, they want you to kill and they want you to want to kill. And so how do, I, how do you reconcile those two different parts of who you can be? Because I think then, then you have to confront the idea that you always have that capacity within you to do those things. And no matter what you'll do the rest of your life, you're always going to have that capacity. And, and knowing that about yourself, I think, is, is damaging, and maybe a little bit freeing, but, but also like frightening. And the person thing to me was this concept that sounded scary and frightening. And also as like maybe an explanation for who I had been and and also those like my capacity for, for, to cause pain to others, um, and to not feel bad about it.
0: Yeah, there, Tyler Bordeaux has a wonderful book called Packing Inferno. Um, I don't know if you are familiar with his work. I'm not, is it another Marine who also worked right down the street between um, from where I was in Al Karma and from where where you were um, at a bunch of different places in Iraq, and he talks a lot about the anger idea. And then when he yeah. when and and it's and it's when he comes back that he really feels the anger. Also, an, he was an infantry officer. Um, and I'm I'm trying to figure out. You know, to a degree where where you think that comes from, you know and why it maybe manifests itself even more when you get back he Bordeaux actually says that you know war isn't hell because he looked forward to it, he wanted to go. It's what Fair. he was designed to do as an infantry marine, uh, so he calls war the foyer to hell, and hell <laughs> is when hell is when you get back <laughs> hell Hell is being in this place that you're not built for or designed for anymore and trying not to lose your mind and scream at your wife when she shuts the refrigerator door too you know hard and makes a loud noise so I'm wondering you know as you've kind of tried to explore that idea of anger and that that idea of of coming back from Iraq um, where do you think that that anger comes from Oh geez. if it's I a knew super easy I, question I, if, right yeah man if I knew just I, throwing I, softballs here yeah i
1: could I think that could really open some doors up for my therapist if i were to <laughs> if I were to be able to pinpoint it uh, i you know I think that a lot of a lot of my anger comes from and still does come from or came from and still does come from i th- I think these moments of of feeling like i know like you just want why can't you be me or think the way i think Mm. and i think that that maybe spouts from this moment of like in the marine corps you're you know people at least in the infantry i feel like you know you're all you're kind of taught to think the same way and look at a situation in a similar manner and so that feels like then you're surrounded by people who might be individuals and different from you. And I think that like that kind of individualistic thinking is, is mostly encouraged uh, especially in combat. I think it's something that people often don't talk about is how like we are small unit operators. And I think that we are able to operate separate of command, like higher command usually pretty efficiently, but also the way that you would solve that situation is probably very similar to the person next to you. And your reaction time is going to be similar to the person next to you. And, and there are certainly exceptions to the rule and it points in time, I was certainly an exception to that rule. But I think that my anger in, the, in my everyday life kind of spouts from that moment, which is like, why can't you just see this the way that I see it? Why can't you operate the way that I will operate? And I think to some extent, people probably react the same way, but I think that anger is definitely encouraged and and kind of uh, nurtured in, in the military. And, it, and, and so it feels like it's acceptable. And, and it's also, you know, that is part of like that regressive masculine culture that that's kind of prized. And I think that, you know, anger is part of that idea of, of you know, it asserts power. And, and I think that that's also something that, that we prize as well. And so anger kind of takes the place or at least has the guise of leadership in that, in that, in that way um, when you're in. And so it's easy, I think, to fall back into that pattern of anger when you get out because then you feel like you're establishing some kind of power dynamic or you're establishing some kind of leadership in that in that arena and i think being a teacher has kind of has helped me mitigate that anger and also you know being in a relationship where my wife is not accepting of that anger at all and is like well we need to talk about this and you need to work through it instead of just like trying to you know tell me to do stuff or whatever it's like you really have to real like I, it really has taken a lot of real like moments for me to like stop and reflect and writing has also helped that too, Where it's like, it's given me a space of reflection where I'm looking at my reaction to things. And it's like, well, maybe if I had reflected as a, you know, as a Marine when I had been in, like I would, maybe I'd still be in the Marine Corps. Maybe I'd just be a really good Marine. I don't know, but I'd never had that time to stop and reflect and think about those moments. Cause you're just constantly making decisions,
0: you know? So there's something in, in what you're talking about, which is maybe the difference between, kind of the rational mind and how, you know, the forebrain kind of processes stimuli yeah. and your circumstances and kind of like your reptilian complex, right? The mm-hmm. fight or flight. And what you have in war um, whenever you're feeling emotion is you have the outlet of violence. Right? Yeah. And, and for the, you know, the human animal, it's, it's violence or sex, right? Are kind of the, the two outlets to deal with anger and anxiety. Yeah. Um, and so now that you, but, but you're, we're also kind of conditioned, right? That, that, you know, shout, kill, um, that expression of anger, that expression of a, a, a need for destruction, um, and the normalization that, of it for sure yeah. I mean, that that becomes everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes everyday life. And now, now that you're back in the land of the big PX, Um, you know, getting angry and exerting yourself through violence or dominating through violence is just off, off the table. And so I'm wondering, I mean, do you think that some of the anxiety that most veterans feel when they come back from, you know, war is just based on that, that I have to turn off the thing that was prized in the Marine Corps. I can't use it anymore. I can't use that penchant for violence and that penchant for anger.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, the obvious answer to that is yes. I think that's, I mean, a lot of where a lot of that, you know, it just kind of backs up. I think it backs up and backs up and backs up because one, you know, you're not ever, I mean, I was lucky enough to, you know, go to school afterwards and, and have find outlets that let me kind of explore that and reflect on that. But I don't think people learn that skill, you know, mindfulness or reflection or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think that, like that's something that's been invaluable to me to kind of think about why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling and then write it out like and it's something that seems so intuitive but I don't think that it's something that's intuitive for for veterans one because you're you're told that I mean a lot of the time essentially like the hero narrative that we kind of talk about today is a silencing kind of act right if you call somebody a hero there's an expectation of of what they did in the service and then that tells them that you don't want to hear their story in the first place and so that silences that particular story from ever being told and then they people just assume that well people don't want to hear those stories they just want to call me a hero buy me a beer or whatever and so then you're just disallowing that anger to be explored and those kind of emotions to be explored and that i think is also the kind of like triggering factor for that anger right which is like people can't quite figure out why they're angry and they're angry because they're not able to tell their stories because people just keep calling them heroes and thanking mm-hmm. them for their service.
0: Yeah. You mentioned that you did a, you did a Vox interview. Yeah. Uh, a while back about the, the concept of the hero veteran. And if, you, know, you said, if someone truly wants to understand soldiers in the forever wars, we're now asking them to fight. All you have to do is open your damn ears and listen <laughs> to all of our stories, not the stories you want to hear, but the stories we tell. I'll take that over a yellow ribbon any day. Damn. So, I mean, there, there's no shortage of you know books, uh, essays, news stories uh, about you know the, the horrors of war, right? The 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 things that are not you know what you're going to see uh, in Saving Private Ryan and in Braveheart, but you still have this idea that kind of permeates you know, uh, America and, you know, people that haven't served and even a lot that have of this idea that every veteran is a hero. And, and, and you, you seem to point to the fact that like people are not listening to, to the actual stories and they've created this ideal. Why do you think, why do you think that people are doing that? They're creating their own narrative that isn't based on fact.
1: Well, Cause it makes them feel good. You know, I, I, yeah,
0: especially Iraq as a,
1: as a war and a conflict, I feel like it's, there's a, people feel complicit. They don't, well they w- don't want to feel complicit in the act of sending people to war first off. So it's easier to just call people a hero because if they're heroes, then it, you're acknowledging your your the semblance of acknowledging their sacrifice and the thing that they did which makes you feel good about yourself which is more a selfish act than anything but i think that you know it's it's i think it's really about crafting this narrative to to make themselves feel not complicit in this act of destruction which is war and i think you know as citizens you have a responsibility if you don't believe in a thing to you know voice your opinion against it like that's kind of the the joy of being in a democratic republic but 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 i think that that narrative one is a black and white narrative right if if people are heroes then we're the good guys we never have to acknowledge the bad that that we're doing a bad thing and killing hundreds of thousands of civilians um and so i think that's probably one of the reasons is that people want a black and white story which is why most of the time that like the those movies that have come out in the last couple of years have, have really painted the U S as like from a heroic standpoint and not kind of questioned our motives and, and kind of actions in those, in those places. And, and I, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's really interesting. I feel like that people don't feel like they can question the military or service members. I feel like if you, if you volunteered for a position and then specifically represent another, like a country and a large group of people, then you should open yourself up to, to criticism, you know, like that should, that should be like the immediate thing that you should expect is it's not like somebody's forced you into this space. You know, that's the other weird thing with an all volunteer service is that we all chose it. You know, you might not have known hundred percent what you're getting yourself into, but you, you chose it. And so you should accept some kind of responsibility and you should expect some kind of criticism. But again, that veneer that the military creates, I think gets in the way. And then people feel like, Oh geez, I can't question these people because they're fighting for my freedom, which is like, what freedom are we fighting for? You know, like how did, how did Iraq ever, ever threaten your freedom? How did Afghanistan ever threaten your freedom? You know, I, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around how either country could, could, could destroy our way of life. You know, I, I just don't see it. And so we've, we've uh, I think, you know, the military is as much to blame for the perpetuation of that myth as civilians are to blame. And so I, but I think that mostly the military will sling mud at civilians before the c- civilians will sling mud at the military, which is a weird, I think, dynamic that,
0: that the military has created. No, I mean, that's, yeah, I, I, I feel like you just peeked into my brain. Uh. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's it's yeah. it's a hard time right now too. Cause I feel like it's, It's it's just like a bunch of lip service about it all, and that just and it's just it's so infuriating to to hear, I don't know to to even like you know people if I if I do an event or something, somebody will have a question. The first thing they'll say is, well, first of all, thank you for your service. Oh yeah, you didn't read the book. You didn't didn't read it, did you? Uh, And so I'm just yeah, it's just like oh, don't just don't do it. You know, just don't thank me
0: yeah you've you've got a, you have a wonderful exchange between past me and present me in your book which i really <laughs> enjoyed poor it, kid which was the you know eighteen year old belt fed air cooled uh you know marine boot uh talking to the um you know i think it was i think it was i think present me was either either after your second or after your third deployment i think it i think actually is my
1: grad school self my academic oh self. oh even more fascinating
0: yeah. uh and he keep your past me keeps calling you a pussy for <laughs> <laughs> for trying to you know overly overly uh complicate what you know past me sees as his right to be thanked for his service <laughs> and the um the amount of acclaim through free beers and uh female attention yeah. that the 18 year old you thinks is his due. Uh, something, something I ask a lot of the people that I bring on for interviews who are veterans is the idea of, you know, tribal identity, right? That, you know, it, when I was, when I was in Iraq, the, you know, the talking point was, we're the strongest tribe, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, you know, Hey, Sunnis, you should join us because we're the strongest tribe. Yeah. There's, there's something about the Marine Corps, especially in military in general, but something about the Marine Corps in general that, um, you know, even before Iraq, uh, or Afghanistan, which I think appeals to a lot of people like you and certainly to like me, which is, I want to join the strongest tribe. Mm-hmm. I want to be part of that tribe. Um, w- was that at all kind of in your thought processes or was it just like, holy shit, I hit this fire hydrant? Um, or did you think that like subconsciously you were looking at the Marine Corps and saying like, I wanna be part of that tribe. I wanna be one of those guys.
1: Yeah. I I think like um in the immediate aftermath it was like a Sunday and the Marines were the only branch open in the recruiting center. But but I was happy that they were the only branch open the recruiting center because I, it's like when I walked in, it was like, okay, th- like there's like I, there was like some sense of fate in that or something. Like it mm-hmm. felt like penance that I was going to be paying because like, okay, well now I have to put myself through this trial, but there is, I mean, it's a real gang mentality, right? When you're in, you're in. And, and if you're, even if you're in and you're still out, you're like completely out. Uh, if, you know, if, if you're in and people don't like you or if you don't fit the the kind of model of behavior that they want, like it, you you feel i think very separate from that space but i was in and was welcomed in and i think that i was happy about that when i was in uh and i you know i think that was like that's the other kind of myth that we get about especially veteran writers when they come out is that you're kind of ex- like you're supposed to be like this amalgam or not maybe amalgam but like this kind of enigma in your platoon or something like that and and like you're supposed to be like the guy who like quotes T.E. Lawrence before patrols or something, or does like the weird, you know, like the <laughs> So you've read my order. patrol orders. Okay. Yeah, are <laughs> <laughs> so, fragmentary. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think it's, you know, you're like, I just wasn't that, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I just, I, I bought into Marine Corps culture 100% and it gives it, it. You know, it, it feels good and it's welcoming and it's a community when you're there. And also, I was lacking that as a young man. I think, you know, I I want, that's what I, that was the other like reason for direction and going in search of that thing was because I was lacking like a significant father figure. And of course, like, I mean, how much, how many more father figures could you ask for if you joined the Marine Corps infantry before they were doing, gender integration. You know, it's, that's all I was surrounded with was a bunch of men that were telling me what to do. It was, that was the thing that I was after. So yeah, I think that that, that kind of, that gang mentality is, is definitely like a thing that defines you, especially early on for sure.
0: So the title of your book, eat the apple, uh, there, you know, there's a refrain in the, in the book, which is eat the apple, fuck the core. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering how you chose that as your title and and kind of what that means to you. Yeah.
1: The, the first time I think I had heard it was when I was in and I, it became kind of our, like a senior sergeant had like said it out loud and like all of us junior guys were like, Oh damn, that's real good. That's like, like, yeah, yeah. I like that. It's like a pun. And then we were like (laughs) wordplay. And then we thought witty and awesome. So like, you know, we used to tag everything, eat the apple or something like that. Or we'd draw uh, apple cores on stuff or whatever. And that was like, you know, all of our like green patrol books or our, like notebooks or whatever they was had apple cores on them. But it, it, was, uh, it was kind of a defining point for me. And then I, when I got out and I finally started like getting out of the dark ages, that is the Marine Corps infantry, I started reading a lot in, my, in, in kind of my undergrad program and then my graduate program. And I finally got a chance to read Michael Harris' Dispatches. And I think that was the first time that I saw it in print was when he's referenced, like during the battle of, of way, I think he, like some, some machine gunner has it written on his helmet or something like that, you know, whatever it is. And I was like, all right, like, I feel like that, like it just felt kind of like a click because before that all the stories were how to stories and the title of the book was like, uh, I can't even remember what it was like, how to, I don't know how to, how to go to war or something like that, you know, it was so bad that I can't even remember what (laughs) what it was, but then it, then it kind of clicked that it was like, Oh, well that's, that stuff's been done before, you know, maybe this, this kind of idea of like eating the apple kind of like consuming knowledge and then using that as your four years and like taking that experience and then leaving it behind. So it kind of became this metaphor for what I wanted to do. Right. Which was like, take that experience for what it was, this kind of like, Eye opening experience about who I could be and what I, you know, what I could be kind of bent into. And then hopefully at some point just toss it and leave it behind. But of course that thing is still going to be in you. It's still going to be part of you. And I think there's also like that kind of biblical imagery for it too. Um, This kind of consumption of knowledge and the, and the all kinds of horrible hellscape that opens up when you consume that knowledge. And I think that that was the other thing that appealed to me pretty significantly.
0: No, the the fruit of the tree of knowledge was, was definitely something that kind of jumped out to me thematically because Mm -hmm. you're presented with, this technical knowledge, right? How to be a 81 millimeter mortar platoon member, how to be an infantryman, Mm -hmm. how to survive in a place like a rock, but also how to keep, well, not even necessarily how to keep your psyche intact, but how the psyche potentially breaks down when you have these kind of two different types of knowledge. Mm -hmm. You have this knowledge of how to close with and destroy the enemy by fire maneuver, but then you have this more innate knowledge uh, that is how to be a human being. Yeah. And it's potentially the friction between those two. And I thought it was, you know, quite uh, a quite lovely summing up of the friction between the two, right? Is that you have to eat the apple while you're in the Marine Corps. But in order for you to keep going as a human being, you gotta say, fuck the core. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and toss it and, yeah. and be like, all right, I'm it's still with me, you know, kind of like the nuclear waste that you talked about in 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 the person thing in the masks chapter. Yeah. It's always going to be with you, uh, no matter what you do. And, and so, you know, in, in your acknowledgements, you thank several people when you say, uh, that they brought, brought me back to humanity through writing and literature. Talk to me about how you said so you read a lot when you got out, you went to your undergrad program, what were the things that you were reading and, and what effect did they have on you? Yeah. When, so when I went to Oregon state, I was a I had I applied to be a
1: fisher and wildlife major originally because uh, I had this like romantic idea of, you know, that I didn't belong in society, that there was something broken in me that could never be fixed. And so I thought, saw myself as like being a, you know, naturalist. I was going to go walk in the woods and never have to talk to people, uh, which of course is not how scientists work, right? They work in groups of people and they're very social. And so when, I, as soon as I learned that, uh, I kind of was, I just, my whole world kind of upended and it's also a really competitive program at Oregon state. And I, my head wasn't in it and I wasn't really ready for it, but I had uh had an intro to literature course by a guy named Neil Davison and he uh, we read the open boat by Stephen Crane as one of the short stories that we had read. And I wrote a paper on it uh, uh, and, and he called me into his office and had a conference with me as writing professors are want to do. And he said, Hey, this is, you know, this is, for introductory work, it's pretty good. What's your major? And I told him, and he kind of laughed, and then he said, <laughs> he said maybe you should think of being an English major. And I said, yeah, maybe I should, because I, you know, I when I was growing up, I had liked reading. I'd been a reader, and then I kind of went in the Marine Corps, where you know anything you're going to find in a library in Iraq or MWR overseas is going to be like James Patterson or something like that. So I read every James Patterson book ever written um, when I was <laughs> deployed to Iraq, and then and then. And then, uh, and then when I switched majors, I, you know, I slowly got more and more in depth into literature. And I was, I took a lot of, I took a Latin American literature course and I took a Middle Eastern literature course, a women's literature course. And I, I just like, I just started consuming all these things that I wouldn't have consumed otherwise. And, and that is what I think helped me rebuild the empathy that I feel like I had lost and missed out on was kind of reading these different perspectives other than, you know, white male military background, which I feel like a lot of people that I know who got out or veterans who are also readers, like tend to gravitate towards that stuff. That's like the thing they want to read is their perspective, which I understand, but also, I mean, then you're you're just like narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and, and make that somehow that pinhole is getting even smaller. And I didn't, want to do that because i was enjoying these different stories and like mostly fiction and just kind of losing myself in them because one they were helping me kind of forget a little bit about who i had been and what i had done and and two like things like uh maxine hong kingston's the woman warrior was like it was this memoir that would i mean was is categorized as fiction but now would probably be categorized as creative nonfiction. was something that was like I read that and I was like holy shit that's what I want to do I want to like that's the thing that I need to do like I want to be a writer like that's the thing that made me want to write and so I started writing um, and I started trying to fictionalize my experience because I was so into fiction at that time but I hadn't processed any of my experience. Right. I had, I was using kind of fiction and reading to just let it, to let it go to the side. And then when I started writing, I I immediately became super defensive of any character that I had written in that was a military character. Like I didn't, I wasn't ready for them to be like a bad person or have like any kind of moral ambiguity. They were like a moral North star or they were like somebody who was like teaching real world lessons to like, characters who hadn't experienced anything tough in their life so those stories ended up feeling really contrite and just kind of uh maybe not contrite sorry uh trite and just kind of uh, just not well formed um And, and I like, they're hard to read for me now. If I go back and like, take a look at them and they're all saved on my computer. If I look at one of them, I'm just like, oh Jesus, what was I thinking? Like this guy's like trying to explain the real, the real world, you know, as somebody who's been to Iraq or something like that, like, because somehow that gives you some kind of knowledge apparently that other people don't have, you know? Um, But that's kind of where I was after the, after those kind of like reading and writing moments was this, I had met this kind of wall and was like, all right, I'm not doing a good job at writing this. So I have to figure out something else to write. So I started writing stories that weren't military based. And I did that for a couple of years before I started really writing about my experience
0: and got back into the nonfiction aspect of it. And so you, it feels like you needed that distance to empathize yeah. with yourself to a certain degree. Yeah. To- that was the,
1: that was a big thing that my, one of my editors said actually when I gave him the first pass of the book and they were reading it, that section that you were talking about where I'm having a conversation with my younger self. He said, you got to change this. Cause the original version of it, I was just, a, I was bullying that kid. I had no empathy towards him because I had gone so far in the other direction. that I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm being too defensive of my experience. Now I have to be in, intero- like interrogating. I have to interrogate it. And, and then in that interrogation, I turned into this gigantic bully to an 18 year old kid as somebody who was 28, trying to write his experience. Right. So then I'm just like an old man bullying this young kid, which is like just as big as a turnoff as being defensive about the thing.
0: There's, you know, you bring up something that's somewhat fascinating to me is uh, vis-a-vis the idea of empathy, right? You, You have a passage with your mom, um, on I think it was on September 11th mm. and, and and she accuses you of you know lacking any empathy like you you have this as kind of a, a bit of your justification for joining the Marine Corps and I forget exactly what the line is but she basically just is like you didn't even care you were like just completely non not yeah. emotionally involved uh, because of 9-11 at all um, I, Did you find that you, I mean, this is a strange question, but did the Marine Corps and maybe your experience at war kind of hold up a mirror and let you see that you lacked empathy that you just, it wasn't part of your being even before the Marine Corps and maybe took the Marine Corps and took war for you to recognize that and to start to develop it? I think it took, I think, yes. I think now that I can reflect on that, and
1: I, and I think that, you know, if you can find a 18 year old teenage boy that does have a depth of empathy, I will buy you dinner forever. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I don't, I think that like, yeah, I had lacked that for whatever other reason. And one of, you know, it's probably there's something that has to do with my privilege growing up in the Midwest as in a white town, as a white kid, as a white male, and, and i think that like all those things kind of contribute to that lack of empathy because i've never had i never had to kind of develop it and i think yeah then you see it it's easily more easily taken advantage of in the marine corps and then i think that it took me years to kind of realize that like oh like i'm in uh, now i'm like developing it for the first time like and that's kind of that was those were the revelatory moments for me was like like you could actually feel it happening when your thought process starts to change like you, you can feel like the neural pathways in your brain kind of changing. And I feel like it was a, like a new way. It really is a new way of thinking, like being able to understand how somebody else might feel or look at a perspective outside of your own is a, is a, is something that has to be taught. I don't think it's something that people come with, you know? So I, that was, I think that, yes, the Marine Corps held up a mirror to that, but it like that, I didn't see that reflection. You know, it was like traveling light years until it got to me. It took, a, took a while.
0: Yeah uh, Matt, thanks a ton. Uh, I, I, I feel sure. I feel really lucky going to talk to you because I, I absolutely adore your book. Thank you. Um, I appreciate it. Just, just as a random side note, I actually, as much as I try to keep up with you know, veteran literature, and um, you know, I went to see Kevin Powers, the author of Yellowbirds Speak. Yeah. He was down the road uh, in Dallas here and went to see him. I actually found your podcast uh, through Roger Bennett, who has a uh, podcast called Men in Blazers about English soccer. <laughs> and he, and he was, he was, he was raving about your book, right. um, at the end of his podcast. He usually does book recommendations. And That's awesome. I was just like, Oh, I've got to check this out and tore through your book. Um, you know, felt very fortunate to get to read it a second time, uh, in preparation for this interview and just cannot recommend it to our listeners enough. Um, yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what are your plans for future writing? Do you have anything else uh, cooking? Are you focusing on teaching right now? What what's what's the plan for your 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 future writing career? Well, I I am teaching right now, but I uh,
1: but I've got a. I'm hoping to get back to fiction. I've got I've got some, you know. I feels like I did so many weird things and experimental things in the in my memoir that I feel like if I wrote a follow up memoir, then I would have to do the same stuff. And I or it would be expected or something like that. And so I want to give myself some space from that and maybe get back into fiction, try, try a novel out and see how that works. Uh, Mm -hmm. Torture myself that way. And then I've got a, you know, I'd, I'd like to explore kind of recovery and and maybe I dwell like a lot in the traumatic aspects of life and kind of these like moments of sadness in the book uh, and this kind of like broken sense of humanity. But I kind of feel like maybe exploring recovery would be something that might be, It's not people don't do often, and I think that that's something that I want to try eventually. But I don't know how, you know. That's a that's a whole other set of formal and structural issues that I'm going to have to work through. But uh, it's definitely something that I'm interested in for sure.
0: Matt, how can people keep up with what you're doing? Follow you? Are you on the, are you on the, are you on the, MySpace? are you on the my space or on the face space on the tweeters?
1: I'm, I'm not, I, I, I left all that stuff behind. So unfortunately you can't you. follow me on the social media, but you can check out my website where I tend to have a pretty up-to-date list of events and, and things that are going on. It's a com. Super. All
0: right. Well, listeners check out, uh, Eat the Apple by Matt Young. Uh, Check out MattYoungAuthor.com. And Matt, thank you again. Thank you so much for, for being on the pod. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brian. I appreciate it.